to rehearse with you. And so we've been going through these things. Tonight I'm going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And uh, I have a couple of reasons for wanting to go through this. Uh, tonight I'll talk about some of that in uh, a short while here. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16 is where we begin. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? I read it wrong. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can spend some time considering this wonderful legacy that you've left for us as your people. I pray that you would help us to value it, treasure it understand what you've given us in it, that uh, we would uh, partake of it uh, with knowledge, and that we would grow by partaking of it, and I pray that you would uh, use this time tonight to instruct us and to help us to grow uh, in this area as well, to understand why our church does what it does, and what the meaning of all this is, and Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus left the church with two ordinances uh, which we must celebrate. The first of these is baptism, which uh, <clears throat> all those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior are then qualified to partake of the Lord's of, of baptism. Now, baptism is the one ordinance that is a one-time thing. Now, now, no doubt, some of you have been baptized more than once, uh, but it's only one time that you're baptized. Though. You may be dunked many times. When my kids were little, I dunked them in the swimming pool. Uh, we would be playing, and uh, then when they got bigger, I, I made rules that we won't dunk each other anymore in the swimming pool because I'm not going to be dunked. Um, and, uh, but when my kids dunk me, that's not baptism. And when I dunk them, that's not baptism. And if you are uh, not saved, you can get in any body of water and you can have anyone speak words over you and you can have anyone pull you under and dunk you in that water, but that is not baptism. Baptism is an ordinance of the church, which we administer upon those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It is, in fact, a public way. I like to say that baptism is your public receiving of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a public announcement of a private event. What happened in private is that you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then you come to the, the waters of baptism and you make it known to everyone. And this is what you need to understand. When you are baptized, now this is the way the Bible describes baptism. Romans 6, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ 
were baptized into his death. Now Paul goes on to say in that chapter that he that is dead is freed from sin. So when you are baptized, you are publicly announcing that you have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead to the glory of the, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So you in a type, in a symbol, which is, this symbol is not just something we've made up. This is something that the Lord Jesus gave us, commanded us to administer as we preach the Great Commission. So we take the new convert and we publicly, in, in the presence of the church, we make it known that this person has received the Lord Jesus Christ. He is announcing, showing you that he has been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised up to walk in newness of life. This is what he is professing in that baptistry tank. Now that's why we don't do private baptisms. I had an email a couple weeks ago. A guy emailed me, wanted to get baptized, wondered if I could do it, but didn't want anyone to come and see it happen. No, I don't do that at all. That makes that, that totally strips away what baptism is. I'm not going to take you out in the backyard and baptize you in the kiddie pool over at our house for a party. Uh, I heard recently about a, a youth camp. Kids were getting saved. The youth pastors were taking them out into the creek and baptizing them right then and there. I, you know, I, I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's, it's a church ordinance. The church is the one who approves this. The church, which in our church, when someone comes for baptism, we, uh, Brother Arnell teaches them uh, a Sunday school class for a while, teaches them what baptism is. It doesn't have to be that way. We have other people that can teach them uh, and disciple them in what baptism is. They come and give their testimony to the deacons. The deacons hear that and approve them and recommend them to the church. So this is what is happening. By the way, kids are away at camp. My kids are away at camp. I don't want to hear that they got baptized while they were there. You know, I, I'd like to know uh, that they, that I'd like to be there and be a part of it. I know that people will argue, well, on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized the same day. I don't, I don't think it's wrong for someone to be baptized on the same day. But I do think that the church needs to be the one administering this, that this is a church ordinance. The church is to do it, uh, do the baptizing. So, in the life of a believer, baptism will be observed one time. Once you have been saved, then you can be baptized. Anything prior to that is not baptism. But once you are baptized, there's no need to be baptized again. Once in a while I hear about a married couple who will renew their wedding vows. You know, I don't, I don't have a conviction about that. Uh, but they'll renew their wedding vows. All right. I married my wife. I'm not going to marry her again. I'm married to her. I can't undo that. And I can't redo that. It is done. We're married. 
Same thing with baptism. You can't redo it. You can't undo it. You are baptized. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've been born again, then you are baptized. When you get baptized, that is it, once for all. Baptism is a formal taking of Jesus Christ as Savior, acknowledging his lordship over your life. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is necessary for church membership. It is, in fact, the gateway to church membership. And Acts 2.41 would be an example of what we're talking about, that church membership should follow baptism. So we don't have the unbaptized as members of our church. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Christ gave the church the ordinance of baptism and gave the church the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is just the opposite almost of baptism. Baptism is kind of like it pictures a birth. It pictures that new birth. I could say the same thing with that. You're born once. All right. You can't go back and re be reborn. You can't be unborn. All right. Uh, the unborn out there, that that's impossible for you. Once you're born, you're born, all right? And so baptism is symbolic of that. But the Lord's Supper is not. The Lord's Supper is something for the believer. It's the ordinance for the believer that is to be practiced throughout his life. It is something that we're to do over and over and over again. It plays an important role in the life of a believer, and especially in his relationship to Christ and the church. The Lord's Supper is, just as baptism is a public uh, taking of Christ as Lord, even so, the Lord's Supper is a public announcement, a public identifying with the Lord and his people, it is a public way that God has given us to fellowship. Okay, the, the Greek word that's rendered um, communion is the word koinonia. We've just spent, I think I uh, had 30 different um, devotionals to introduce our Lord's Supper celebrations on koinonia. So by this time, I think you're all very familiar with the term that really signifies our shared participation, our shared life together in Christ. That we are participating jointly, we're participating together in Christ. So Christ is sharing with me what he has, and I am sharing with Christ what I have, he is giving me all things that pertain to life and godliness. I am giving him all praise and glory and adoration. I'm also doing that with you. We are sharing life together. I'm giving of what the Lord has given me. I'm sharing with you. And what the Lord has given you, you're sharing with me. And that 
really is the fellowship of the church. I know that we have watered down the meaning of fellowship because when we say fellowship, we think, you know, uh, potluck in the gym, all right? I've really worked on not calling it that, but sometimes it slips because old habits die hard, you know. Uh, and I don't think that that's wrong to call it that. I think that, you know, the, the New Testament had, uh, the New Testament church, the early church, had kind of a, a love feast um, that they would, and I, you know, I'm not sure how often they did that, uh, whether it was weekly, monthly, um, or periodically, I can't say, uh, but they would share food with each other. We know that because of some of the things Paul said to the church at Corinth and others, uh, but this was a custom among them to share food with each other. And you think, I mean, we, we are in a very spoiled age. I, I heard on the radio uh, this morning that if you live at poverty level, if you live at poverty level, you are richer than 80% of the world. You're still in the top 20% in the world. And uh, yet, uh, I was listening to the two guys yak this afternoon, and they were saying that, well, we are the unhappiest that we have ever been. We're Laodicea. We're rich and increased with good goods and um, have need of nothing, and uh, we're just miserable, wretched. Um, but that being said, this idea of sharing food with each other, especially in a time when food was not quite so readily available, <coughs> would require more self-giving. And we throw away a lot of food here, so it may be hard to see that. But still, there is something about sharing food with each other, giving you the food that I have, that is a part of me giving to myself to you. And that is important to fellowship. So I don't deny that potlucks next door are fellowship and, in fact, I think viable to fellowship. I imagine if all we did was come in, sit down, endure the worship service, walk out, go about our business. Imagine if that's what we did. Um, what kind of life would that be? Uh, so, I mean, we are, you know, this is, I thought about this early in my pastorate. That if the Lord, you know, early on I prayed and asked the Lord to give me 40 years here at the church. And then, <clears throat> after a little while, I thought, these poor people, they're going to have to listen to me three times a week for 40 years. That's 150 times a year times 40 that's like 6,000 times that you're going to hear me tell the same dumb jokes and use the same illustrations and use the same inflections and hammer on the same things. And you're going to get used to that. And I thought, I noticed that people really enjoyed the guest preachers and that when the guest preachers came, the altar would be filled. And I thought, yeah, I don't blame them. After a while, it starts sounding like that Peanuts teacher, right? Right? For a little while. <clears throat> and so, why is this? And then I thought further. And I thought, well, 
Really, the church is about shared life together. And we share life together. I mean, I know that like Sunday mornings, we, we have people, especially uh, probably the biggest number of non-members that I've ever had attend church regularly, faithfully on Sunday mornings. And it's not that we exclude them at all, of course. Yeah, I see you all um, loving them, befriending them, and so on, doing things with them. That's great. Sunday night, we have guests. But Wednesday night, I mean, this is family. This is family night. You can tell I let my hair down a little bit more. <laughs> but, but look, I mean, you know, Jared and Caleb were, what, fourth grade, third grade when you came here? And they're adults now in the church, taking their place as men in the church, right? And you've watched my kids grow up in the church. And we have people that grew up here that are, uh, we're raising their kids now together, watching that, watching the Lord work through our lives. And, and so, you know, it's Brother Nick right now, it's a painful thing. We are all suffering together with him, thinking about what he's going through and that we're going to lose him. And what a Oh, what a treasure he's been over the years to us. And to have that taken away, it's like a piece of your life is gone. So this is what the Lord's Supper is symbolic of. It, it really takes all of that shared life together and puts it into symbols here at the table. But these symbols are not just any symbols. They're not made up. I've argued in the past, you know, and it's not that I object to the Christian flag, just that if there ever was a man-made symbol, it's the Christian flag. And I don't get pledging allegiance to it. I just don't understand that. Um, now, our kids don't even know the pledge to the Christian flag. <laughs> we've never done it. And so they go to places and they're like, what is this? And everybody knows what they're saying. But that's not the symbol that God gave us. He gave us a symbol for us to unite around. And that's the Lord's table. And I think a part of it is we, we want a banner. We want a symbol that we can rally around, that symbolizes, that marks what we are in Christ. And unfortunately, too many churches neglect the Lord's table. It as if it means nothing, as if it's reserved only for special occasions. So the Lord's Supper is a public identifying with Christ and his people. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The Lord's Supper is necessary for the church member as well as for the church as a whole. Now, Paul referred to, first of all, the cup of blessing. And we should consider the Lord's Supper as a blessing whenever we take it. Now, I grew up in a church where, um, as I've joked before, um, taking the Lord's Supper was like receiving 40 stripes save one. Like when you walked in and saw the Lord's Supper set up, you got this sense, this feeling of impending doom. You knew that the pastor was going to lay into every sin in the book 
and that you are going to have to repent in sackcloth and ashes and approach the table in groveling and fear and trembling and so on, and you dreaded it. <clears throat> Fortunately, that same church didn't do the Lord's Supper very often. I, I remember maybe twice in all the years that I was in that church. But the Lord's Supper is a blessing. It is the cup of blessing, which we bless. So it ought to be treated as such. It should be a place where we rejoice and celebrate, not, not with exuberance, not, with, not out of control, but a, a solemn delight in the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a blessing for several reasons. First of all, in the Lord's Supper, we memorialize the death of Jesus Christ every time we take it. It just by nature, what Jesus ordained in the Lord's Supper, you cannot escape the fact that it is memorializing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his broken body and his shed blood. Now, listen, I know that Jesus died on the cross, but you and I should not be mourning his death. We may mourn our part in his death. But we should not be mourning his death because he rose from the dead. That wasn't the end of the story. That was the part where he took death down. All right? And that's more reason for us to rejoice and celebrate because death is already destroyed. It's already destroyed because it lost one man. Couldn't hold him. Death could not keep his prey, right? And so because death lost that one man, that one man has promised, has pledged to us to bring many sons to glory through it and has told us, assured us, that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So death is doomed. That's cause to rejoice. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper reminds us that the death of Christ is the life of the church and the basis, the foundation for everything that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a public showing of his death. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul said in the next chapter, in fact, back 1 Corinthians 11, 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. So again, this is a memorializing of the bread. It's every time we take the Lord's Supper, it doesn't get old to us. We declare those words. We take the bread of the Lord's Supper and we declare this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. We are reminded that his body was broken. We are reminded that his blood was shed. But also we publicly show that his death is our life. Just like the food that you eat. You eat that food, it becomes your life. You know, we all joke that 
you are what you eat, if you are what you eat, then we're all dead meat, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but there's a lot of truth to it. Your body is made up of the meals that you've had over the last month or two. All your cells are renewing and they're drawing from that food in order. And so, so when you're eating that, that's why you chew it. That's why you swallow it. That's why you drink it. Because you are in a public way saying that this death of Christ, his broken body and shed blood, is the source of my life. It is what sustains me in this life, just as food does. Alright? Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is our communion with Christ. I've talked about Quinonia and so on. But in our communion with Jesus Christ, we enter into intimate participation in his suffering and death. We are invited, remember, I mean, it's one of my favorite statements from John Stott's book, uh, The Cross of Christ, that Christ invites the believer to come and die. And I love that play on words because we always think of come and dying and it is, but you come in, by coming and dining, you are coming to die. You are announcing publicly, so you're showing his death by yourself dying. I, I will, you know, this is again the privilege of hearing me preach 6,000 times in my life and yours, is that I repeat the same things, but you know, it's, it's the truth that the controversy over what the bread becomes is all wrong-headed. The bread doesn't become anything. The point is that you eat the bread and you become the body of Christ. That's the point. And that happens by you dying with Christ. Mortifying the mem your members which are upon the earth. So... <clears throat> As is the case with so much of our Christian lives, the pain of his death is his, and the joy of his death and the benefit of his death is ours. When we take the bread, we acknowledge ourselves to be crucified with him, our body broken with his broken body. When we take the cup, we acknowledge that we participate with his blood, that his blood has cleansed us from all sin. Fourthly, because the Lord's Supper is our communion with each other, it is the communion also of the body of Christ. It is, in fact, the basis of our fellowship as a local church. This is the common denominator with every one of us. All of us are participants together in the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have all received that and appropriated it to ourselves. And this puts us all on equal footing in the church, breaking down all pretenses, all prejudices, all biases, all um, tribalism, all um, the cliques that might happen and so on. We don't have, you know, the haves and the have-nots in the church. We don't have the elite over here and the wannabes over there we don't have that in the church and in fact that's why paul is dealing with this 
in 1 Corinthians because that's exactly what they were doing. They had the haves and the have-nots. And some were gluttoning. Is that a word? They were, they were picking out. And some were starving, going home hungry. Because they were keeping, they were maintaining these artificial distinctions that God never intended for them to maintain. So <clears throat> when a church celebrates the Lord's Supper faithfully and frequently, it builds a great loyalty to the church and to the members of the church as well. I talk, you know, our college kids, it's now that my kids are the college kids, um, I probably don't talk about it as much because I just hear, you know, it just comes up. But the two things that consistently our college kids have told me the thing is at the church, psalm singing and the Lord's Supper. Those two things. It's interesting to me um, to hear that. Now, you know, I'm not trying to, like, prime the pump to make sure all the other kids know what they're supposed to miss when they're gone. All right? But I'm just saying that that... Those are unusual things for people to miss about a church, right? Except that those are significant parts of what we do here. <clears throat> so the Lord's Supper is itself a love feast, an expression of love from Christ to us, from us to Christ, and from us to each other. Participating in the Lord's Supper is a sacred duty, nor should any Christian abstain from the Lord's Supper except for very short periods of time in the most extreme of circumstances. If there's some sin that prevents you from taking the Lord's Supper, it must be your priority to get that right so that you can return to the Lord's table. Alright? Now this is an area, and I have a good friend who sees it otherwise. And so regularly in his church, there will be a handful of people that will go months without taking the Lord's Supper because there's some grievance between them and another person. <clears throat> How shameful. That's shameful. It's shameful that that would go on and on. That should not be. If there is problem between you and another person you go to that person and you talk about the problem and you have a conversation and you resolve it and you reconcile as much as life within you live peaceably with all men especially them of the household of faith I didn't quote that exactly right but that's what the Bible says it is an honor for a man to lay aside strife we should not be hanging on to grievances. We should not be allowing that to prevent us from coming to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. We should make it a priority to get things right so that we can come to the Lord's table. Otherwise, think about what you're saying. When you abstain indefinitely from taking the Lord's Supper, either you're saying that the blood of Christ celebrated in the supper is powerless to deliver you or you're saying that you prefer your sin to the bread and cup of the Lord's Supper one of those two things 
either Christ's death and shed blood is powerless to cleanse you, or you place no value on it compared to the value you place on your sin or your grievance. <clears throat> if you say, well, I'm not taking it because I'm not worthy. Well, I would, I would just shyly ask, who is? Who is worthy to take the Lord's Supper? Isn't that the point? That we're not worthy? Isn't the point that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled to God? Is it not the case that it is his righteousness imputed to me that makes me acceptable in God's sight? Is it not so that we are accepted not for our own sake, not for our own merits, but we are accepted in the beloved, right? Christ in me, I in you. Christ in me, I in Christ. <clears throat> Jesus didn't call the righteous but sinners to repentance. There really is no other reason to abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. Well, someone say, well, I need to get something right with someone before I take it. But just Jesus didn't actually teach that. If you've offended your brother, you should make that right as quickly as you possibly, as you possibly can. If you are aware of it, and honestly, we, we kind of know when we've offended our brother. We shouldn't be, you know, knuckleheads about it, just oblivious to it. We should be dealing with it. Jesus taught, in fact, that if you've offended your brother, he didn't teach you to abstain from the Lord's Supper. He said if you've offended your brother, there's one thing you should abstain from, all right? I'm going to say this. Give me a little street cred here, all right? The one thing that he said to abstain from was giving your tithes and offerings, giving your alms. I know we preachers are not supposed to say that because you're supposed to give, 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 and give again, right? And we should never, actually, we should always be coaxing you to give more. But that's what the Bible says to do. No, stop doing it. Don't give your alms until you make it right with your brother. All right? That's what we should abstain from. So these are some preliminary thoughts on the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I want to teach you more specifically what communion is, who is invited, how it should be celebrated, and how often. All right? We're not going to get to all of that tonight, but we'll start with what it is. The institution of the Lord's Supper is recorded for us in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. Would you look there with me? Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. It also is recorded in Mark 14, verses 22 to 26, in Luke 22, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. Um, the, the account is not more than six verses in any passage, and varies little from one account to the next. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper during Israel's preparation for the Passover, just prior to his death. <clears throat> he did not institute it, by the way, during the feast of the Passover, but that's another issue. The institution of the Lord's Supper was very simple. With his disciples gathered around him in the upper room, Jesus took bread, blessed it. The Greek word for blessed there is eucharistio. That is, he gave thanks for it. He broke it, passed it to the disciples, and said to them, Take, eat, this is my body. The apostle Paul borrows from Luke's account, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now, these are the words that we speak over the Lord's Supper. And that, speaking those words over the Lord's Supper, is a way of consecrating this. This is what we do. He took bread. Luke 22, verse 19 says, He took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. So, so we can take those two. You know, Matthew says broken. Paul quotes that, broken. But Luke said given. The breaking was the giving. The breaking of the body was the giving of the body. <clears throat> he then took a cup, gave thanks for it. It's the same Greek word, eucharistio, and gave it to his disciples. The account of what Jesus said varies one gospel to another. According to Matthew, Jesus gave instructions about the cup. Drink ye all of it. He defined it. This is my blood of the New Testament. He gave its purpose, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he said that he would not drink it again until the day when he drank it new in his father's kingdom. Matthew 26, verses 27 through 29. Notice those things. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Mark, in his account, leaves out the instructions about the cup and the purpose for his blood. Mark 14, 24, and he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will, not, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke elaborates on Christ's instruction in Luke 22 but includes all four parts that are included in Matthew. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So that's what the supper is. And Christ clearly defined its purpose, its intent, and so on. So then who is invited to the Lord's table? This is probably the most controversial topic in Baptist churches, and so I want to explain our position on this. There are essentially three positions on 
who should be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. These three positions can be described as open, close, and closed. Now, our church has taken the close position. I'll explain the three positions to you as best I can. Then I want to explain why we've taken a close position historically. After that, I want to explain to you why I believe that we as a church should move towards a closed position. All right? This is something I've talked about with our deacons several times, and I want to begin the process of teaching it to you as well. Now, open communion means that the Lord's table is open to everyone without regard for salvation, baptism, or church membership. Not too long ago, uh, I went to an ordination where a young man in a good Baptist church stood up and said he did not believe that the church had any right to fence the table or to say who should come or who should not. Um, I didn't sign his ordination papers. I did ask him a question, though. I asked him this. Do you believe that the church has a responsibility to discipline its members and to excommunicate a person if they refuse to respond to that discipline? He said, yes. I said, do you believe that if a person is excommunicated, they should be allowed at the table? He said, huh. He said, I guess excommunicated would mean that you're not allowing them to the table. I said, no. All right. Um, he said, I'm going to have to think about that. I think he's a fine young man. I think just not taught on that, which is disappointing. The open position is absolutely unscriptural, period. Those who partake of the elements of the Lord's table without having received Jesus Christ as Savior, are in, in the purest possible way, purest form of what Jesus meant when he said that you are eating and drinking damnation to yourself. To partake of the Lord's Supper, to formally and publicly receive Christ when you have not actually received him, when you are still rejecting him. You are putting yourself in grave, grave danger. Our only hope for eating and drinking worthily is the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us as our sacrificial substitute. So if his righteousness has not been imputed to us, we have no business at the Lord's table. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, 27, Paul said, Wherefore, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Very serious there. This is not just Jesus, not just God throwing about words. Serious thing. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. How can we eat and drink worthily when the blood of Christ has not been applied to our cleansing and our redeeming? 
are justified. How can we discern the Lord's body if we have not received Christ as Savior? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, <clears throat> Uh, the critical commentary makes this point. Unworthiness in the person is not what ought to exclude any, but unworthily communicate. However unworthy we be, if we examine ourselves so as to find that we penitently believe in Christ's gospel, then we may worthily communicate. Now, some of our Presbyterian brethren offer the Lord's Supper to baptize children before they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a unique thing among the Presbyterians who are paedo-baptists. Um, it's not a common position, even among Presbyterians that have been um, big, a lot of strife over this issue, but they call it paedo-communion. Honestly, I feel like it's a much more consistent position if you believe that a baptized baby should be considered part of the body of Christ. Then, of course, you would give it the Lord's Supper as well. And so they give the Lord's Supper to their babies. But baptism, as we've shown you, is reserved for believers and does not serve, like the Presbyterians say, as a promise or commitment on the part of the parents, for sure. It's not what it is. Baptist churches have always practiced credo-baptism, credo-baptism upon profession of faith, so believer's baptism, um, and credo-communion, credo offered to believers, uh, communion offered to baptized believers. So pedo-communion would be one species of open communion, obviously. That's what's happening. You're inviting unbelievers to your table. Bible-believing Christians place a fence around their table. The controversy amongst Baptists is between the position of closed and close. <clears throat> Those who, it really is a matter of where we place the fence, all right? So we believe that we have a duty to fence the table, but where do we put that fence? Those who take a closed position, fence, say that the fence has to exclude all non-members from the church from taking communion. And like most things, you'll find a variety of ways people arrive at their position. I'm just going to summarize the argument that I usually hear for closed communion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now since the Lord's Supper is for the body of Christ, and since Paul defines the body of Christ as a local church, then those who hold to a closed position argue that non-members should be excluded because it is the communion of the church, the body of Christ. They take 1 Corinthians 12, 27, to argue this, now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Paul says he, ye are the body of Christ, and ye, is second person plural, he is excluding himself, they say. 
And therefore, he doesn't consider himself a member of that body of Christ, which would be the church of Corinth he's speaking to. So then the Lord's Supper is the communion of a particular body of Christ alone. Many who take a closed position argue that a church shouldn't offer the Lord's Supper to non-members because, and I've heard this many times, I have no way of knowing if you're right with God or not, they'll say. If you're not a member of our church, I have no way of knowing. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> our church historically has taken a close position for all the years that I can account for. I don't know of any other position that we've taken on it, at least officially. Close means that we extend the supper to those who belong to a church, our church or a church in close fellowship with ours. We agree with those who take a closed position that the church has a duty to fence the table. Here's why. First of all, the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. Therefore, must be offered to those who belong to God's church. There are Christians who don't believe in church membership, some that come to our church, don't belong to a church. We're not. That is to say, I'm not accountable to the church. I'm not under its discipline. And so that we, I believe, should exclude that a person who won't belong uh, or join themselves to the visible body of Christ. In our church, we offer the Lord's Supper to members of churches of like faith with our own. Uh, that is, churches that we would be in fellowship with. This means we only offer the Lord's Supper to those who have made a profession of faith and been scripturally baptized and who are accountable to a like-minded Baptist church. We cannot offer the Lord's Supper to Presbyterians, for example. I, I believe that many Presbyterians are our brothers in Christ. Not all of them, for sure. They call Baptists are either, honestly. Um, but they practice pedo baptism, and because um, we're not like minded, we're not a, um, a, a, a like precious faith when it comes to that, we don't believe that we can pretend to be in communion with them. They allow the unconverted to the Lord's table in some cases. That's a big deal. We're not saying that those who belong to a Presbyterian church are unbelievers. We wouldn't declare that. We have a young man, Presbyterian young man, who comes to church here. Sometimes he comes a lot, sometimes he doesn't. But he comes on Sunday nights, and he always lets everybody know, I'm the Presbyterian brother. Um, but he loves the Lord and loves the Word of God that's preached. He really does. And, um, but we can't offer the Lord's Supper to him. <clears throat> so we just are saying that we don't pretend to be in communion. Our doctrinal disagreements on that point cannot be overcome. We would not accept a letter of transfer from a Presbyterian church. We do not believe that they baptize scripturally. So we could not offer the Lord's Supper to them. We would treat non-denominational churches, including many Bible churches, the same way. We could not accept transfers from many Southern Baptist churches either as there are significant doctrinal differences between us. As a general rule, we do not accept letters of transfer from quote-unquote Protestant churches. The Baptist church was never Protestant, never sought to reform the Church of Rome because Baptists were never part of the Church of Rome. 
We're not Protestant. We're grateful for God's sovereign hand in the Protestant Reformation, but the truth is, as Spurgeon pointed out many times, when the Protestant Reformation swept across Europe, it did not bring an end to the persecution that Baptists faced. It only brought a change to who was persecuting us. Again, we don't say that these believers are unsaved. We're grateful for God's work of grace in their life. We rejoice in their love for the Lord. I, they're, they're part of the family of God, and I recognize that. But the Lord's Supper is the communion of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is a definite thing. We do believe that this body of Christ is represented here for us in our own local church. The idea of a universal church is, just opens us up to so much compromise and garbage here. And so we have to be very careful of that. There are many, many local churches and so many representations of the body of Christ on this earth. But our, our duty and our orientation here is towards this body of Christ. All right? This is where our communion is found. You might wonder then why we've not been absolutely closed. Um, Based on the teaching that I laid out for you for closed communion, which I've always heard, I have a hard time building a doctrine out of Paul's use of the word we. In Romans 12, 5, Paul says, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. He didn't exclude himself there. So in one place, Paul uses the second person plural to refer to the body of Christ. And another, he uses the first person plural. I don't believe that Paul's use of the second person plural is meant to exclude himself at all, any more than when I'm preaching to you and I say you, I'm excluding myself. I don't think you would take it that way. He uses the word we, in fact, in the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing, he said, which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of christ the bread which we break he's not excluding himself there right if we're supposed to treat the he that way then jesus was also excluding himself when he said ye are the light of the world when he said ye are the salt of the earth i don't believe paul's use of we is meant to exclude himself at all. But if that were Paul's purpose, then in Romans 12, he included himself. And the truth is, we know that Paul partook of the Lord's Supper in a church other than his own church. Acts 20, verses 7 through 11. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue to speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together, and there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down to sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Trouble on yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again 
and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. So they were gathered there to break bread. That would be the Lord's Supper. Paul took it with them. This is at the church of Troas. It's certain that he did take the Lord's Supper with that church. The disciples then, from the 11th verse, uh, we see that Paul participated with them in it, and for this reason, we believe that it is lawful for us as a church to offer the Lord's Supper to those who belong to a church that's of like faith and practice with our own. As far as the concern over whether or not they're right with God, I mean, let's just be honest here, folks. I don't know if you are. I mean, I like to think that you are, but I don't know that you are. We don't have like a metal detector when you walk through to see ah, the alarm's going off. God, is thy heart right with God? <laughs> huh? um, and the truth is that most of us are struggling with sin all the time. All right, I don't say that to dismiss it or to give you a pass. I say it because this is the reality in our lives. Now, it is a practice of mine. If you are in sin and there's, we've dealt with it a few times and you keep going back into it, that I would say to you, and I've done this a few times, not often, but said, I'd like you to abstain from taking the Lord's Supper right now until we get a handle on this. Let's take some time. And you can consider that to be an early step of discipline. I'm saying to you that when we come to the Lord's table, it's supposed to be also a place of self-discipline. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink that cup. So what it tells me is that you have not been disciplining yourself in coming to the Lord's table. And for that reason, I am going to, as acting on behalf of the church, we're going to discipline you until you begin to discipline yourself in this area. <clears throat> I have a change of heart in recent days. I want to share it with you. All right. I'm not at this time ready to make a change, but I do wish to present my arguments for making a change. It's been my custom over 20 some years when I think that we ought to consider a change to bring it before you and to present it to you and then we'll meet with the men and we'll have discussions of it. And that will give you time to discuss it and think about it and then have questions. So I'm not just presenting it to you the first time at a men's meeting, and we'll, we would never make a change unless we had um, an agreement within the church. There was unity on that issue. Our practice has become gradually more closed over the years, honestly. What I'm talking about doing is, like, we've left the door open a tiny crack, and we're talking about closing it all the way. All right. 